1: it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked
2: Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9.
1: Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael
2: Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody.
3: Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross
5: I've
6: also been at the top, I've seen the view, and the view only means something if you share it with other people, if you truly enjoy your work. And it's never the top. We're horizon seekers as human beings, so it's never going to be enough.
0: This is Hello Isaac, my podcast about the idea of success and how failure affects it. I'm Isaac Mizrahi, and in this episode, I talk to five time world champion professional triathlete and Oscar winner Leslie Patterson.
6: Hello, Isaac. It's Leslie Patterson here. I cannot wait to talk to you. You have the best hair in the business.
0: Oh, my God. Leslie Patterson. Where do I begin? Well, here's where I begin. We have never met before. So this is the first episode that I've taped of my podcast where I actually don't know my guest. But I do know a lot about her. I am a huge fan of hers. And I think it's a thrilling, thrilling story ahead. Firstly, her whole career as a triathlete. I mean, that's Always so inspiring to me. Anybody who, like, makes it out of bed and, you know, like, runs and swims and does stuff, like, for me, that is, like, the closest to godliness, right? But not only is that a big part of her story, but then she went on to produce one of the great movies of the past number of years, All Quiet on the Western Front, which was this crazy kind of passion project that she carried for a very, very, very long time. And the end results are so beautiful. If you haven't seen that movie, you must, because it's an incredibly, incredibly compelling and beautiful and engrossing experience. And So the story of making it is really, really fabulous. And what's exciting to me is that I have no idea how it's going to unfold. But really, just this idea of this incredible person who does so many things, that is a thing that I can relate to. So I'm excited to get into this. Here we go. Leslie Patterson. Hi. Isaac! Hi. Darling, I swear you are a beautiful specimen. I mean, oh, my god! I was looking at photographs of you online. There isn't a bad angle on you, okay? Oh, come on. Oh, yes, darling. And I think to myself, a person with this body, like, do you measure every single ounce of food that goes into you?
6: I was just speaking to my husband about that last night. You know, I've been a professional athlete for a long time. Yeah. And food plays a weird, you know, like role in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a lot of body image issues and a lot of issues with food throughout my entire life, to be perfectly honest. So yeah. I guess long way of answering. <laughs> yes, I do. And I think about food <laughs> all the time. And, and, and.
0: And, and, and. Wait, I have a quick question before we get started with all this. When you don't diet is there one food that you like absolutely adore that you'd cheat
6: chocolate
0: chocolate oh wow
6: no no but seriously Isaac i have like you know how you have those like kind of questions back and forth with each other like hey like if you had to die what would be the way that you die yes, in this- yes. mine yes minus to die in a vap chocolate
0: <laughs> <laughs> any particular chocolate like chocolate fondant or chocolate ice cream or what is it chocolate cake
6: it's it's like a fondue of you no know, this is really bad this is really nasty white chocolate uh, right proper chocolate
0: wow that is amazing oh i love to know that i don't know why i love knowing that so much all right <laughs> so let's talk about your history you come from scotland you were born there And you were raised there.
6: Yeah, so I was born there. I spent most of my life up until the age of about 21. That's when I moved out to California. So I grew up in a small town in in Scotland called Stirling, which is like central Scotland between Edinburgh and Glasgow. It was amazing. My parents were incredible. And I was an 80s baby, right? So it was like Mm -hmm. you, you get outside, you play in the muck. I was always one of those girls that liked to play with the boys. So Mm -hmm. I played football, or as you guys hatefully say, it soccer. And my first sport was actually rugby. So I was the only girl in an all-boys team. So pretty much anything that was difficult, anything that allowed me to beat up in boys, and anything that allowed me to get muddy, I was like all over it.
0: Right. And so did you go to university? How did you extricate yourself from Scotland? What happened?
6: (laughs) Yeah. Do you know, I knew I always had a burning desire to do something big and I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. My parents were big on education. They wanted me to go to university, as with the rest of my brothers and sisters. And in the UK, of course, we get financial support to go to uni, which is amazing. And I was competing really heavily at the time. And so I wanted to go to a university that that both had a drama programme, and was big in sport. And that was down in Loughborough. There's a, a, quite a famous university called Loughborough, uh, mm-hmm. Baruga, and it has uh, both those things. So that's what I went off to do. I was a drama student as well as being you know, on a scholarship for sport, which, by the way, those two don't mesh very well.
0: Well, I know. I mean, I have to say, as someone who does more than one thing right, in the world, your story really, really resonates with me. Somebody who's into completely opposite spectrum things, right? And is there some way for you to say, like, which you love more or what you love the most?
6: I feel like I love both equally in very different ways and one helps the other in very different ways. So in order to be a top athlete and the best in the world, you have to be creative, because you constantly have to be dynamic and flexible and think of different ways to reach the top. Because ultimately, you know, that top sort of 1%, it takes mm. something remarkable to get there. And finding what is remarkable takes creativity. But also as well, I would say that in my life, the creative, the arts have always centred me. Because when you are deeply, deeply rooted in sport and sort of going after something like a world title or Olympics, the behaviours that you get are very obsessive compulsive. It's a very insular pursuit. It's a very selfish pursuit. And the arts have always balanced me, you know, taking me out of myself, giving me a different perspective. And so that's always kind of given me this depth and this dynamic to be able to navigate uh, the world of sport. And then equally in the creative arts, right? It's so ethereal. It can be so arbitrary. And I'm a creature of habits and structure that I've created through sport. Not only that, um, it's all about um, failure. Sport is, right? Right. Yes, And in the creative arts, if you can't understand how to take criticism, how to take those no's, especially in the film business, and get better as a consequence, you're fucked. So right. they really have balanced my life, out, I would say.
0: Well, I mean, one of the premises of this particular podcast is how you kind of deal with failure and how it affects like, quote unquote, success. But I would love to know from you, what is success, darling? What does that mean to you?
6: I think it's ever-changing, right? Isn't it? How you value your life and what's important mm-hmm. to you. And I think when I was younger, it was very much about proving myself, getting that status, um, getting that gold medal, getting that title. So it was a very external thing. And now mm-hmm. success has become a very internal thing. It truly is about relationships. It's about enjoying my work, finding fulfillment in the craft, in the mastery of the craft. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more about process than it is outcome. Uh, The outcome ends up being great if you focus on the process anyways.
0: Right. But do you suppose that the external world kind of recognizing you in some way propelled you into this place where you could actually think of success differently? Like, do you need some kind of revelatory, you know, recognition in the world in order to place yourself back into the process?
6: Yes and no, I think The trouble is in today's society, we're comparing ourselves to people at heights all the time. And most people are never going to measure up. So how can they find their own success? I think it's easy for me to say that because of the position I'm in. But at the same time, I've also been at the top. I've seen the view. And if you only mean something, if you share it with other people, if you truly enjoy your work, and it's never the top. We're horizon seekers as human beings. So it's never going to be enough. And right. so, you know, certainly as a coach, because I coach a lot of athletes and, you know, I've done a lot of life coaching and stuff, that's what I try and instill with the people that I'm friends with, that I work with, you know, because even when I've won those world titles, it was like, oh, my God, you know, I've got to do it again. I've got to do it again. I've got to do it again. And what's been fascinating is now in this film career, I'm I'm obviously more mature, Mm
4: -hmm.
6: but, you know, everyone is like, oh, wow, your next film, is it going to be as good as All Quiet? And I'm like, I don't give a flying fuck.
0: (laughs) Really? Don't you?
6: No, I mean, of course, I'm going to try and make it as good as possible, but it's so arbitrary in terms of what comes together to make a film project successful. And truly, I value all of the moments that come together to put a film in production, to make it, all of the experiences along the way, because I didn't do that in sport, and I regret it.
0: Right. You know, one thing about us, the things that we do, they are kind of performance based, right? Like whether it's athleticism, movie making, fashion, I do a lot of performing and, you know, writing jokes and stuff like that. I know that part of your process, for instance, as a writer, is more kind of inward and you have to win and you have to kind of celebrate this process thing. But do you ever think about like the rejection that you take on such a regular basis and how that kind of teaches you in some way? I think, you know, we've been talking about the word failure and the word success, but also the word rejection is a big, big, big thing to us, right?
6: You know, I'm married to a psychologist who is also my
0: (gasps) partner. Yes, he's also kind of good looking. I looked at pictures of him
6: too. Yes,
0: your husband could totally get it. Totally.
6: So what he taught me, and this was a really profound moment in my athletic career and in my creative career, was, you know, obviously we know that the brain changes. It's neuroplastic, it's plastic, which means that you can rewire it. Now there's a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex which sits in behind the eyes and it's like in the in the shape of a sausage and it actually it processes emotional and physical pain right and what happens is it gets denser and grows thicker as we deal with adversity and therefore, it allows us to cope with more the next time, right? And so, this is quite a simplistic way of of assessing it. But what that did to me is, I was like, any kind of rejection that would come along, I'm like, oh, it's brain training. It's like building a muscle because we have a principle in sport which is called the overload principle, where you train really hard, your muscles get you know stronger after you've recovered, allowing you to cope with more. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to the brain. So that's a really positive thing to take out of each quote-unquote rejection. And that was a total game-changer for me because I was like, bring on the rejection because I'm going to learn something and I'm going to get better and cope. Isn't that amazing?
0: That is really great when you boil it down to an actual physical thing in your brain that grows from this, right? right? Yeah, that's incredible. Darling, while we're on the subject of rejection, can we talk about the unbelievable process your Kind of going from being this incredible triathlete, right, like an amazing winner and insane kind of success, and then just deciding like, oh, yeah, I think I need to make this movie. I think I need to buy the rights to like this old novel called All Quiet on the Western Front. Tell us about that.
6: So, you know, I, as I told you, studied drama at university at the same time as being an athlete, but... Essentially, I was kind of a failure in sport initially and thought I would go to the Olympics and didn't. It's a different format of triathlon. It didn't work out for me. And that was a huge kind of like self reflective moment where all of that passion for my sport had gone and where was I going to put it? So at the same time, my husband got a job in California and San Diego. And um, so I decided I'd do a master's program in theatre and film, uh, just as a way to kind of rediscover myself. Because anytime I've had a tough moment I've gone back to the arts as I spoke about and through that process I realized I love performance I just wanted to try everything to figure out where am I going what do I love and I started to act and just loved it
0: in San Diego
6: in San Diego in San Diego Scottish so yeah he's English and we met at university in England so as I was Grandma, He was doing his PhD. So anyways, we'd just been married a week and we moved out to San Diego. I was 21. We had a suitcase each, bugger all money, um, nowhere to live. Like, it was really exciting. It was a chance to kind of, you know, just go on an adventure, right? and uh, I'd been in I think I'd been there for like I don't know 10 hours we flew in the night before and I had my first class you know in my master's degree but it was an amazing experience I tried everything I really tried to connect with myself because that's what I'd lost sight of through all of this failure through all of this rejection that we'd spoken about in sport you know I'd been funneled down this path you have to be this way in order to be a world champion and I wasn't that way so it was a real chance for me to kind of rekindle who I was so that led to me doing acting and all sorts of things and I was coming up to LA and I met a, a guy who was producing and writing Ian Stokell and Ian was my writing partner on All Quiet along with the director eventually Ed and we started writing together because he said to me Leslie if you want to act you really have to write and produce your own stuff so that you have some autonomy over what you're doing made perfect sense and i was like okay so we started to write together and i found out it was actually quite good given all my training and we were both just reading all quiet at a local barnes and noble store and um, it was on sale and we started to chat to each other he was in the military previously i love war films right. i've always been fascinated by world war one as a landscape of because course, of course so intense and it's an opportunity to really investigate people at the most heightened crossover of the mechanization of war and all of that right mm-hmm. and hey is a cyclist i've cycled all over europe and every single town has a beautiful statue with thousands of names all over of the men that died in world war one and it's just a huge part of of my life as a british person mm-hmm. um so anyways, I was reading this book, and both of us were like, "God, this is such a good book. It's so poetic, and nobody's made it recently. Um, and Ian was like, "Why do we find out if anyone's got the rights to it?" And we approached the estate of the author, which is you know largely the way that you try and find out about an option, mm-hmm. and literally, we just pitched them, "This is our take, this is our idea, this is who we are." And they said, I- which." panat
0: That's great. Yes for a fee, right? Yes for a certain amount of money. No. Oh I mean- <laughs> yeah.
6: yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, there's the rub, darling. There's the rub. You know,
6: honestly, everything costs money as you well know. And it's like, you know, there's a risk to everything. You've got to give it a go. At that point, this was a few years into us being there. We had some savings. Ian didn't have any money, so Simon and I were like, okay, we'll put up. It was 10,000 bucks which is a lot of money when you don't have anything. And that's like all your savings creep out. And we got it. Um, We had a lawyer negotiate it all. And it was all like, oh my God, we've made it. Ah, this is unbelievable. Ah!" And, uh, you know, you get rights. And then, of course, you have to adapt the
0: fucking thing. So, Well, yeah, adapt it and then get it greenlit and find a studio and find a distributor. I mean, it's a lot, right?
6: It's a lot. So it was a massive learning curve. Oh, but you know, I mean, like hell of a journey, right? Uh, In terms of what we've learned along the way, because ultimately it was 16 years from, when we optioned it to when it came out. But yeah, so that was hard. That was a lot of kind of self-reflection to get to the point where it was good enough to get it out. We had a lot of people look at it, a lot of different, you know, drafts, A lot of different ways. Research was a key aspect of it.
0: Right. So um, 16 years from the time you got the first option till when? Till the premiere? Yes. Right. Wow. That is an amazing, amazing amount of time. And what did you do with yourself in the interim? Were you still kind of competing and winning things? Yeah,
6: so, you know, my career really took off as an athlete. So obviously, I mean, it took us about two years to adapt the script in and of itself, many different drafts, because when it comes to any kind of adaptation, you're finding your own angle, what's going to update and be relevant. But also with a novel like this, which is like excerpts of a diary, you're having to find that narrative drive, that narrative through line that's carrying it. So when we found the the story of the last six hours of the war and the armistice, we're like, oh, my God. So anyway, we finally got to that place where we thought, yay, you know, we've got something that that we think is pretty good. And then it was a case of, OK, how do you put a film like this together? You know, you're trying to get cast attached and directors attached and producers and studios and everybody saying no. And we go on these just crazy journeys. Mm-hmm. Um Booster's going to jail. And then, of course, you know, all along this while, you're having to re-option the material, which means every year you're having to come up with the best part of 10000 bucks and say, we can still do it, guys, you know?
0: How do you not lose faith in all of that? Was there something burning in you?
6: It was like a deep thing in my belly that I knew we had this take. I knew our script was good enough. I knew this film should be made and it was just a matter of timing and of course we lost our faith many times i mean all of my family including my husband at times was like the fuck are you doing like we can't afford this and we were remortgaging the house i was using all my race earnings to get it i mean on and on and on
0: yeah that is the most inspiring thing i've ever heard Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
7: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You kept writing, refining, refining, and showing it to people and getting notes. How do you know which notes to listen to and which notes to reject?
6: definite flags in the sand that you are very passionate about that you want to stay with and so you take on board every single sort of note and then you assess it based upon your gut based upon their experience and what they're saying and you have a really good hard look at yourself and the project. And what's servicing the project, what's going to get it made, what stays true to it, all of these things. Mm-hmm. I'm a very collaborative person. I get it. It's a business. Mm-hmm. and I'm quite level-headed. Darling, you know? we're
0: both Libras, so we understand collaboration. Nobody understands collaboration like a Libra, darling. Right? No.
6: God damn. Right? You know what? I think, though, Isaac, so much of it is driven by ego, right? The choices mm-hmm. that people make and how they respond to quote-unquote criticism you know Mm -hmm. they take it often and it's all about I need to show my power I need to show my worth I don't need that I don't want what's best for the project but at the same time I have a strong vision and I have it for a
3: reason and as
6: long as I can stay true to those reasons there'll come points where you have to sort of shape shift it and change it and that's okay as well you know depending on does it get your project made, does it not? so I think you just have these you know value systems that you you live your life by, and that's how you progress
0: I understand perfectly when you say all that it just sinks right into my brain um so over the sixteen years, was there one day where you just went like that's it, I can't stand this anymore
6: I don't know that I ever had that had that I'm over it um. Right. Because my nature is such that I always find a way to get something positive out of a situation. That's why I'm always gonna find a way to say this experience right now is gonna help me in some way. I mean, we had some mm-hmm. very, very big lows. Um, yeah. and probably the biggest lows, you know, were to do with money and mm-hmm. then all my relationship with my husband, who was not in the film business when we started and is now. But he's an amazing guy. Obviously, I wouldn't be married to him, but he's a cynic. He's a very cynical person. So to deal with that negativity can be tough, especially when it's both of your money that's going into this.
0: Right. So Leslie, tell me about The Last Gasp. How did you raise the money at the last, last gasp of the last Mm -hmm. option?
6: this is totally bananas so um i mentioned to you earlier that when i was racing i would often use my race earnings to pay for this option because you're talking 10 grand um you know a year So this specific year, we didn't have any money. Um, You know, we were having a tough time, and we decided that I would go out to race in Costa Rica. Uh, I was really fit at the time, and this specific race was coming up, and I had a good chance of winning, and that would cover the cost of the option, which was due like in weeks. Oh God. Bananas. So I flew out to Costa Rica and the format of racing that I do, you check out the course the day before because it's all off-road. It's all on mountain bikes, right? So I was checking out the course, all on trails, and I fell off my bike. Mm. And when I fell off my bike, I broke my shoulder, which... Of course, I did not know at the time. I just knew I couldn't lift up my arm. Right? It was really fucking painful, and I was in bits, totally bits. Because, like, you know, you're prepared for this race, you're excited to do it, and of course, you bought this option. And so, I sat down with my husband, and this is me. Right? I'm always thinking, how can I make this work? How can I make this work? So, I spoke to my physical therapist on the phone, and he was like, "Well, listen, I don't know exactly what's going on. Just try and not move your shoulder." So I went out on the bike and I could actually prop my hand up on the handlebars Mm -hmm. and hurt, right? But any technical descent down rocks or anything like that, I would have to walk. Okay, I'm like, well, I can get through it. I could run. The up and down motion was not actually painful. It was just if I lifted my shoulder. So then my husband's like, well, do you think you can swim? Because it's a mile swim, it's 1,500 metres. So we go down to the ocean's edge and I guess in the water and I'm like, Hells to the no, this is not happening. Like, I can't lift my arm up to get my breath off. And he looks at me and he says, But Liz, you're really good at the one-arm drill. Uh-huh. And I, you know, he's got a point because I was not a very good swimmer when I was younger. We would do a lot of drills, one of which was the one arm. We would do lots of like just swimming with one arm and practicing body and this and that. So I get in the water and I'm like, you know what? Like, I could totally do this. So we start the race, off I go. I'm like, fuck it, swim in one arm. And so I get through a mile, I come out the water. And of course, normally I'm in contention, right? I come out the water 12 minutes down off the lead. And I'm put, I mean, I'm put. And uh, ah. off I go on my bike and, you know, I'm pretty fit. So I'm cycling, cycling, anything that's technical, I have to get off and walk. And I start to work my way up, work my way up. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm going to get in a podium here. Like maybe I can make enough money. And I get off the bike and I'm in second position and mm-hmm. running is my strongest. So I ended up running into first and winning the race.
0: <laughs> that is crazy, all with a broken shoulder. Oh,
6: broken
3: shoulder.
0: It's insane.
6: I know. I know. I am insane, though. It was almost like the goal of it. Like I get a kick out of doing really ridiculous things. You know, if something is really stupid and t- someone tells me there's no way you can do it, I'm like, game on.
0: Okay, you know what? We need a movie about the making of All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> and this has to be the climax of it.
6: Totally. I tell you, I've been approached by a few people, actually. Um, so you never know.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> we were talking about this earlier. It's like, no, 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 no. Go back. Notes. Goodbye. We can't meet. It's Christmas. It's Summer and nobody wants to meet on Christmas. Ah, what was the yes?
6: This was wild. So we had another producer on board at the time that I'd been friends with for a while, and he was helping us to try and get the project off the ground. We had another director on board, quite a big one, and and nothing was really gaining too much traction through that. And then um, Edward Berger and Malta Grenier got a hold of our script through our producer at the time, through through his agent's lawyer's rep, you know, 10 times removed. And they were like, oh my gosh, Ed had always wanted to do this film. They loved our script. Would we consider having a conversation with them?" Mm. And, you know, I spoke to various people because by this point I had friends in the industry that were kind of in the know and they were like, oh my God, Edward Burger is like super hot property right now. And when we spoke to him, he just had such a clear vision. He wanted to do it German speaking, which, by the way, brilliant. is perfect.
0: It's brilliant. It's brilliant.
6: It was brilliant. But, but let me say this it's not like we didn't think about that. But 16 years ago, you could not have funded a foreign film uh, to the capacity. So the whole landscape had changed by this point. But authenticity has been this huge movement hasn't it you know in terms of content mm-hmm. so here we have like albeit he's swiss but you know lived in germany most of his life german guy you know with a very clear vision incredibly passionate about the material that that has a great producer on board with a massive track record there was something about it that just felt right you know yes and so we did everything we could, and it was very difficult, very complicated to get out of contracts and other contracts. It was a lot of fucking money. <sighs> it was, dude, it was the most stressful time in my fucking life. I came out in hives because <laughs> 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 yes, I knew it. I just knew that this was our chance to get it made.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: And you know and everything was getting in the way and i was calling up everybody to like make this happen and it ended up costing us like 35 grand in lawyer's fees to like get like what you know anyways all sorted we get in bed with these guys and we present it at the berlin film market at the beginning of 2020 mm-hmm. and there's a bidding war <sighs> pretty much. and you're just like i knew it our script Great producer, German-speaking language. Everybody was all over it.
0: Wow. Well, I'll tell you a similar story, which is about a movie that I made called Unzipped, which is a documentary about me. But, you know, we just did it. We just made the movie. I was seeing the guy at the time who was directing it, and I was working with this woman called Nina Santisi, who produced it. And we just made this movie and it costed very little money because it was just us running around. And it had like Naomi Campbell in it and Linda. Anyway, they sent us to Hollywood. We made a million meetings, blah, blah, blah. Then Nina submitted it to Sundance and it won an award. And then of course, huge bidding war. And like, we all knew, you know, we knew it in our gut. And that also took a million years. And it's a very similar story to like, nobody wanting it, nobody understanding a fashion documentary what the hell is that? And so if it weren't for like, you know, Nina and Douglas and I pulling together all together at once, you know, it would not have happened. But listen, I want to talk to you about the concept of fear. How does it affect your process, fear?
6: So what? So I don't know if this is being Scottish, you know, sort of Calvinism in me. I have sought out fear my whole life. Right. And I it has to do with suffering right and and you can't truly have pleasure unless you've had pain it's the deficit model finding a place to suffer is all about facing your fears and our entire brand because my brand of coaching my brand of an athlete our our company is called brave art entertainment you know it's all about having bravery to face your fears because that is where the magic happens when you get that introspection on life where you face those demons and have bigger insight and where you have growth. So, you know, I have fear all the time. Probably my biggest fear in life is missing out.
0: Right. Me too, darling. We were kindred spirits again. (laughs) Now, this goes back to a thing like when you were a kid, did you have plans? Did you say like, I need to do this in my life? I need to do this. I need to do this because that's what the fear of missing out comes from. It's like if I don't get to do these 20 things before I die, like what a waste of a life.
6: I felt like I was special and I felt like I, I wanted to do something really special and big. I've had it since I was young. I don't know where that comes from. I've really thought about this. I'm one of four kids, right? And I'm the youngest. And maybe you're always fighting for your place at the table. You're fighting to be special because you're always the hand-me-down. You're always the last one. You know, all of that. I I don't know. Um, But I've had it in my belly since I was young. I've always wanted to do something big. So... um, I always felt like, oh, my God, if I don't take up this opportunity, it's not going to happen for me. And so you, you do end up just kind of not being in the moment.
0: Right. And,
6: and always seeking.
0: Always seeking. And you know what? Like, I'll tell you, because as a European, I think you have a better basis in the moment. As an American... You are trained to be looking forward only. You are never looking at where you are. You are always yes. looking ahead, you know? And I think it is terrible because like, can I please just sit here and enjoy this glass of wine? You know, but I can't. I just can't, you know? And, um, and to some extent, I enjoy more thinking about what can happen and envisioning what can happen. By the way, in order to be courageous, I think... You need to be a huge coward, right? Like you have to be afraid of every fucking thing because then like, you know, getting out of bed is as great a challenge as, you know, facing like, you know, 3,000 people on stage with your band. Everything is a challenge, right? That's how I live with fear. It's like a muscle, right? Like resisting fear, like, you know, giving into cowardice, whatever it is, that is a muscle as well, you know, that grows and grows and grows. I have to say that your movie is the most gorgeous thing I have seen in a very, very long time. I admire it because of so many reasons, because mostly I'm a very visual person. And also, yeah. like, the level of violence that you take. I mean, like, really, unless you had gone there, I yeah. don't think we would have gotten how incredibly, what's the word? Like, it was a turning point in the history of the world, World or- War I, more than World War II right? More than the whatever wars that came before. And I think All Quiet on the Western Front becomes to me this kind of like this argument for like zero tolerance to war like war cannot exist it either exists and we're all doomed forever or we have to do something and that's a very political deep thing that we shouldn't talk about this is just a a compliment because it's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen
6: well what i mean after all that suffering to get it done it, it made it worthwhile not only to see what ed had done as a visionary but to see the beauty in collaboration when you get all of these amazing talents that come together yeah. to build that level of texture. Everybody from our DP James to the production designers to
0: Volker and the score. Darling, the subtitles oh. are amazing. Wait, you live in Hollywood now, right? With I do. You guys live in Hollywood. And, and is there an agent that helped you a great deal or a manager?
6: When it comes to kind of producing and navigating career, I'm a very uh, driven, dynamic person. So, of course, your representation is going to help you, but you can't rely on them. So, for instance... We're hoping to shoot a film in October in Scotland. We have a great director. We have Karen Gillan attached to star in it. Like it's a really cool, cool film, right? And it's like every single piece I put together myself because you have to fucking fight. Nobody's going to do it for you. You know, we go for advice to our manager. Like we have great representation. They help us and all the rest of it. All the time projects we have going on right now. It's all being generated by us. It's not really them.
0: Wow. That's a good answer, I have to tell you. Now I have a question for you. The Oscar that you got, was that like the greatest moment in your life? Was that success? Was that outward success that affected you?
6: You know, I would say probably in many ways the BAFTAs were bigger for me. I'll tell you why, because of course I'm in my home country I managed to get tickets from my mom. My mom came to watch. And we swept the ground with that whole thing. We got a screenwriting BAFTA. Like, the whole experience was just a lot more fun. It's a bit more low-key. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, was just like, holy shit. The Oscars, I find actually kind of tough, actually. Oh, yeah. But it was hard. It was kind of intense and
0: not actually that fun. I mean, just getting up that early and your like glam squad kind of... Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? I know. That's a lot of work. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, is there a special place for that kind of success? Like, you know, winning those BAFTAs, winning the Oscar, the world actually saying, yeah, this is a beautiful, beautiful film.
6: I'm always going to find a way, like, how can I improve? What does it mean next? I mean, I'd say with... The biggest experience that was the hardest one with All Quiet was we were not involved as much as we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it was a really weird experience to have all of the success. But then actually, in many ways, my failure was the fact that that we didn't get the experience that we wanted. Mm-hmm. So we were not allowed to be on set because of COVID. And after 16 years of getting this thing off the ground, it was the most tragic and hardest thing to deal with. Mm. And, you know, all of the Germans were amazing what they came up with, but they did not make an effort to include us.
0: Mm.
6: And that was hard. They could have made bigger effort.
0: Well. All I can say, darling, is that on your next picture, it probably won't be as difficult and labor intensive and as much of like a passion project. It'll just be like a great thing for you. And you will get the experience and you will learn even more from that experience than you would have on this movie. Totally. Totally. Okay. Was there a role model for you? Is there anyone you looked up to, like who did a couple of things and you went, you know what? If she can, you know, be a cook and a blah, blah, and a blah, blah, then I could be a triathlete and I could write a movie and blah. Is there anybody?
6: You know, I've been asked that a couple of times and I, this is going to sound totally random. I often envy people that are content. <laughs> because i'm such a horizon seeker and because i always want more my role models are often people that are living their life and they're happy doing relatively and i even hate to use the word normal things but you know i envy that like i don't have kids that have wrestled with that like do i don't i you know all of these things and you know I would say my role models are often the people in my life that are just like fucking happy and they're doing their thing and you know, you know. What I have
0: to tell you, I know because my best friend, Mrs. Calman, and she is this great writer and she's this great artist. And she literally sits in her room and listens to Mozart and, and she paints, right? And I go, that is a happy person, right? And then every once in a while she calls and goes, I can't do it. I think even to these contented people. Fear goes into it, rejection, failure, all of it.
6: My favorite saying in life is everybody's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Just as, you know, everyone might think, oh my God, Leslie, she's got this great body, she's got this, she's got that, blah, blah. And it's like, we're all fucking fighting our own demons. The trouble is, is almost the more successful you are, or the bigger striver you are, the more issues you have. And we write, you know, a lot of our stories, a lot of our scripts, a lot of the things that we delve into are people that, that have that dichotomy. You know, the thing that got them to the top is the thing that also brings them down.
0: That's right. Both Things, Um, darling. This is the question that I ask everybody. What is your obituary? Okay,
6: so must have something to say about this, about me, because I have, um, I have an issue talking about death. Do you? Yes, very much so. And I don't know if you know, I experienced some tragedy when I was younger. I think I'm so scared of other people's reaction to death, and that I can't do anything about it and then also the missing out right well I've done everything I can possibly do so that that would be why
0: of course of course of course I completely understand well I mean we don't have to talk about that absolutely not um let's talk about what you've got going on is there something that you'd like to promote on the podcast
6: there's a book that my husband and I wrote and it's called the brave athlete calm the f down and rise to the occasion
0: calm the fuck down and right oh. I-
6: down and rise to the occasion. So, what it was was I was coming back from training every day and and really sort of coming up with these new ideas to to like how was my brain working and all these new approaches to life. And then he would be like, "Well, actually, the reason you do that is because of this, this, and this." And he would dig into the science, right? And mm-hmm. so we started to build out this brain mental model. Um, about how the brain works and why we have thoughts and feelings that we don't like, and then a lot of the athletes and people that we were coaching had these questions, like about you know identity or confidence or you know body image issues. And so this book kind of sets out this brain mental model, and then we have a bunch of questions that our athletes asked us. So while it was made for endurance athletes, we found uh, like a lot of directors and actors and performance people, like loads of people have read it. And we've sold about 100,000 copies.
0: Brave athlete or calm the fuck down and rise to the occasion. Yeah. So check it out. Well, check it out. I will do. I will do immediately. Good.
6: (laughs) No, you need to listen to it.
0: You read it? Yes. Okay. Well, then I'll listen to it.
6: Well, I'll tell you a funny story. A lot of athletes, when they're out training or they're out running or they're out biking, will listen to our books (sighs) because... a lot of people like love my accent and they're always like mimicking me, you know, and I was out training one day in Colorado in the middle of nowhere. And I come across this girl and we get chatting. She's like, what's your name? And I said, Leslie Parr. She said, Oh my God, I'm listening to your book right now.
0: Wow. If that is not like the universe telling you something, darling. I love that story.
5: Oh, I love
0: you. I feel like I know you after such a short interview. um, It's a good feeling. It's a good feeling.
6: Thank you, Isaac. Lots of love. Wow.
0: This was one of the most kind of eye-opening interviews I've ever done. And in advance, I imagined that Leslie and I had a great deal in common, only because, you know, she's a polymath and I'm a polymath. And what I loved most about talking to her was that I now see that as something of an asset. As someone whose best friends have all been these incredibly consummate, single-minded artists, people who do one thing and just do it so well, better than anyone in the world, those are my best friends, right? Like Mark Morris and Myra Kalman and Stephen Sondheim and people that really do one thing and they do it so marvelously well. I always felt that being a polymath was something bad. And when I was a kid, every single one of my teachers, my music teachers, my drama teachers, my design teachers, everyone told me that I would have to kind of narrow it down. But meeting someone like Leslie Patterson really kind of opens me up and sets me free in so many ways. And I think for a lot of us, the future is this kind of poly mathematics. It is the idea of doing many things and doing them well. And that was my favorite part about talking to her and listening to Leslie Patterson. It was such an incredible joy. And I'm so glad that you were with me to listen to it. Darlings, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and tell someone, tell a friend, tell your mother, tell your cousin, tell everyone you know, okay? And be sure to rate the show. I love rating stuff. Go on and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. It makes such a gigantic difference. And like it takes a second. So go on and do it. And if you want more fun content... Videos and posts of all kinds. Follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Hello Isaac Podcast. And by the way, check me out on Instagram and TikTok at I am Isaac Mizrahi. This is Isaac Mizrahi. Thank you. I love you. And I never thought I'd say this, but goodbye, Isaac. Hello, Isaac, is produced by Imagine Audio, Awfully Nice, and I Am Entertainment for iHeart Media. The series is hosted by me, Isaac Mizrahi. Hello, Isaac, is produced by Robin Gelfenbein. The senior producers are Jesse Burton and John Asante. It is executive produced by Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Kara Welker, and Nathan Clokey at Imagine Audio. Production management from Katie Hodges. Sound design and mixing by Cedric Wilson. Original music composed by Ben Waltzer. A special thanks to Neil Phelps and Sarah Katanak at IM Entertainment.
1: it gives me a lot of hope.
2: If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season
1: 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast.
2: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross tiffany cross join me and be a part of sisterhood friendship wisdom and laughter we gather a seasoned elder myself as the middle generation and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had listen to cross generations podcast on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast